Welcome to Coog's Talk Stock from WSU Extension, a science-based podcast about animal agriculture for those that raise food animals, those that are interested in learning how, and those that want to learn more about where their food comes from. Find us online at soundcloud.com forward slash Coog's Talk Stock. Hi, this is Natasha Moffitt-Hemmer, 4-H coordinator for WSU Extension in Okanagan County. Welcome to Coog's Talk Stock podcast with WSU Extension. Today we will be discussing pet nutrition and I'm really excited for our guest whom I know from her time in the WSU Department of Animal Sciences while we were both working towards our master's degrees. She now works for a pet food company as a pet nutritionist and is going to answer some of the hot button questions that weigh on the minds of most of the 85 million families that own pets in the U.S. So without further ado, we welcome Corrine Harris to today's show. Welcome, Corrine. Thanks, Tasha, for that welcome. Before we jump into some of those common pet food nutrition questions, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what you, what you do now? Well, I am a long-term Washingtonian. Um, I got my bachelor's from WSU in the Animal Science Department in 2014, And then my master's, um, again, from the Animal Science Department in 2017. My master's research focused on nutrigenomics. We really wanted to see if we could increase marbling in beef cattle by giving calves an injection of vitamin A at birth while we are still in that early development window. And we were able to show an increase in marbling when evaluating the meat quality uh, when we harvested our steers. And it was also really interesting because we saw heavier weaning weights as well our treatment groups were on average about 100 pounds heavier at weaning than our control group. After I wrapped up my master's in 2017, I was hired by the JM Smucker Company in 2018 um, as a pet food nutritionist. And I did just want to say really quickly that um, while I do work for the JM Smucker Company, I am here today as Kareen, who is an animal nutritionist, not (laughs) Kareen, the JM Smucker Company nutritionist. I mostly focus on dogs, so you might see a little bias in my responses here. Um, I'm most definitely a dog person. I have three dogs, but I also love my two cats. Daily responsibilities, I mean, I have a huge spectrum, which makes every day exciting. Sometimes I get to review public-facing content, such as claims, packaging, or advertising materials, sometimes even websites. I also get to review pet food formulas. I get to create educational content for my peers. And then sometimes, just because I have some knowledge of the industry, I get to spend my free time going on a podcast. That's awesome. Well, we're really excited to have your expertise with us today. I really appreciate you coming. As a pet owner mom myself, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on feeding dogs and cats. The most common pet nutrition topic I hear is pet obesity and feeding our animals for a healthy weight. Can you tell me a little bit about pet obesity, like how common it is in the United States? Pet obesity is just the number one challenge that we face as pet nutritionists. I think there's an overwhelming amount of dogs and cats in the United States that are overweight and also uh, you know, healthy majority that are obese. The best way in my mind to address pet obesity and be an advocate for your pet's health is just to prevent your pet from excessive weight gain in the first place. Um, I know that being can be kind of confusing, so I like to recommend reading the feeding directions on pack. Um, You might have to adjust to maintain an ideal body weight. So (laughs) to maintain an ideal body weight, you have to know what that looks like, Um, such as body condition scoring. I like to body condition score my dogs and cats all the time, looking for a visible waist, you know, feeling to see if I can feel their ribs. 
Um, also providing your dog with an exercise routine or um, playing with your cat to increase activity can be really helpful from preventing weight gain. And then, you know, sorry, Fido, no table scraps. If your pet is overweight, one of the best courses of action is to take your pet to the regular veterinarian and get started on an action plan. Cats are very sensitive to weight loss and they can have severe health implications if they lose weight too rapidly. So your veterinarian will likely ask you to get into the habit of weighing them to make sure that you're not exceeding a safe reduction in weight, which is about 1%, you know, total body weight per week. Yeah, that's that's great information. I know the vet's always there to help you figure out whether your animal is at a good weight or in a healthy weight. And it's so important to keep them at a healthy weight so they can live as long as possible uh, by our sides. So what can we do to help our pets stay or become healthy using nutrition? So if you have an overweight pet, great news. Uh, There are commercial weight loss diets for both dogs and cats, um, and they're available without a prescription from a variety of pet food manufacturers if you have a favorite, you know, pet food company out there. Things that I would look for while picking out a weight loss diet for my dogs and cats would be comparatively higher protein um, as opposed to the minimum requirement. And uh, L-carnitine, which is an amino acid that can help maintain lean muscle mass and prioritize fat loss. I would also be looking for higher fiber because higher fiber content in combination with the protein and lower fat can drive satiety. So, you know, your pet just isn't going to be begging all the time for extra food because they're hungry. Mm -hmm. Um, AFCO defines the maximum calorie content of a weight loss or lean diet. So if it's in market, it will follow the AFCO guidelines. One thing to keep in mind, there are weight maintenance diets and weight loss diets. Weight maintenance diets don't really have to follow any guidelines. So there may be better options on the market for your pet. But a weight maintenance diet isn't a bad idea if your pet is very prone to weight gain Um, because they tend to be leaner, um, leaner diets, so just less fat. A lot of people want to know if they can just feed less of their quote-unquote normal food to promote weight loss. I personally would not do that because you want to reduce the energy in the diet without depriving them of the nutrients they need. So weight loss diets that are responsibly formulated account for less energy and increased nutrient content in relation to caloric density, which is what makes them a very nutritionally sound option for overweight pets. These diets will result in an increased fecal output, so don't be concerned if your pet will need increased bathroom breaks or if you see a change in what you would consider their normal backyard or litter box contributions. That is a huge tip because I know that's something we all use as pet moms and dads to keep an eye on the health of our animals. So it's good to know that that might change when we change their diets and not to just feed less of their diet. I think that's really common for people to just think they can feed less of the food and that's the same thing. So my next topic is treats. I know just like human nutrition, pet nutrition can be really complicated. So I really appreciate your explanation of all of this. And I want to know about giving treats to our pets because one of my favorite parts of having pets is getting to spoil them. And I know that treats can impact their nutritional health and there's so many choices out there. So can I give treats to my pets and how do I do so without negatively impacting their nutrition? I hear you, Tasha, because I love to spoil my pets so much. Um, I always have at least three to four different types of treat on hand for my dogs. 
I want to be clear here. When I say treats, I mean commercial dog or cat treats, not table scraps. Table scraps can have some things that aren't super great for your pet. Um, if you're like me cooking, I have, you know, probably like eight cloves of garlic minced before I even know what I'm cooking. <laughs> um, and in large amounts, you know, garlic is not good for your dog. So avoid the table scraps. Uh, treats should always be fed along with your complete and balanced diet. And I really like the official AFCO publication because it outlines what the common breakdown should be. And that is about 90% of the calories that your dog or cat consume. That should be from their main meal, their complete and balanced food. And then 10% should be from treats. So if you treat your dog and your cat, you want to reduce your main meal accordingly. I do have one call out because of puppies. Um, puppies and treats really don't go super well together. They need to be given in moderation because you don't want to interfere with growth and development or, um, you know, you don't want to see rapid weight gain in your puppy. Puppies will grow a lot and they need to grow a lot. But if you treat really heavily in this stage, you can promote early onset obesity, which is bad because it will make them more prone to obesity later in life. Or you can accelerate their growth curve in large breed dogs, and that'll have lasting health implications. Yeah, none of which is good. I appreciate that clarification. So when you mention AFCO, is that A-A-F-C-O? Yes, and sorry, I should have defined that. AFCO is the Association of American Feed Control Officials. Okay. And they are a good resource for nutrition-related topics when it comes to your pets. They don't have a lot of information about nutrition, but if you want to see what most states use as their feed law, you can look up the AFCO official publication oh. and it will give you an idea of what the information on pack means. Okay. That's interesting. Thank you. I didn't know what that was. So what are some of the reasons we might actually want to include treats in our pet's diet? Oh, there, there are multiple reasons. And I think that the primary one is your relationship with your pet. Um, the first relationship I like to talk about is a functional treat. Examples of these types of treats just would be a brushing chew or a pill pouch. I actually started feeding my dogs brushing chews every day because my pets like to be near me. And whenever <laughs> they would breathe in my face, I would be like, woof, that is not a good smell. <laughs> I don't want to smell that. It smells like a nuclear waste dump. Um, so brushing chews aren't a substitution for proper dental cleaning from a veterinarian, but they can definitely make um, that mouth smell a lot better and they can help maintain a healthy mouth and just make the experience of your mouth breathing pet existing near you <laughs> a much more fun experience. Um, another functional treat would be a pill pouch um, because getting your dogs to take pills, whether every day or intermittently, has long been a challenge for me. And pill pouches get the job done and they get the job done in a way that's positive for you and your dog. And probably not as bad as hot dogs like I like to use, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I used to use marshmallows because oh. I had a dog that wouldn't eat a pill pouch and he wouldn't um, he wouldn't eat his food if he saw me tamper with it. Mm, he was smart. He was very smart. So, But pill pouches, my girls, they don't care. They're just like extra treat. Oh, that's great. And then um, aside from your functional treats, uh, you can also use treats uh, to bond with your pet. 
food is a really great way to communicate with dogs. And I'm actually really big into training my dogs. I think it's about the funnest thing ever. When you're teaching something new to your pet, whether it's sit or a fancy trick, food is the most uh, fun and instinctual way for your dog to learn. So the harder the task that I'm teaching, the better the reward I'm going to offer my dog until it becomes second nature to sit or down um, or place or spin or let me trim their nails. For trimming the nails, I'm busting out the pepperoni, you know, hashtag <laughs> employee. Uh, and then you can also use your balanced diet. Um, that includes treats as a component in building the relationship you want with your pet. So you don't try the peanut butter on the forehead thing for trimming the nails? <laughs> I haven't <laughs> tried that yet, but now I might have to. <laughs> um, I can tell you it does not work on little pity mixes. Uh, cough, cough, my mom's dog. So you could try it, but no promises it'll work. <laughs> well, I'll try and I'll let you know. We'll, we'll conduct an experiment. Sounds good. So picking out food for your pet can be really, really overwhelming because that pet food aisle has so many options. And I'm sure you get this question all the time, but can you give us a brief breakdown of how to choose the right food for our pets? I just think that that option so overwhelming to most pet owners. It'd be great to hear from a pet nutritionist. Honestly, sometimes it's overwhelming as a pet nutritionist. There are so many options. <laughs> um, I actually love this question. But I'm probably going to drive everybody nuts because I don't really recommend a specific brand or even a type of food. Um, because as a scientist, I personally like to evaluate what I'm going to feed my dogs using scientific data. So the same way I'm going to do research on what the most effective way to train my dog is, uh, what the best crate is for them, you know, for car travel. Those are all factors that are going to play into my decision. And then I'm also going to think about what's possible with my budget. But the most important thing is, is am I feeding a dog or a cat? Because dogs are omnivores and cats are carnivores. The next most important thing is what life stage are they? You know, puppies are going to need a puppy diet. Kittens are going to need a kitten diet. Senior dogs and cats, you know, are going to thrive a lot better on a senior diet. Um, I'm also going to ask if an animal is pregnant or is going to be used for breeding because then they will need an all life stages or growth diet to accommodate you know, pregnancy and lactation, which is very, very demanding. You can find what life stage the diet is intended for on the nutritional adequacy statement on pack. Um, I love it when people read the packaging, it will answer a lot of your questions. <laughs> um, and you can also look at the uh, nutritional adequacy statement. So the nutritional adequacy statement is perhaps my most favorite part of the package because it's going to tell you exactly what life stage it's intended for. That's awesome. So quick shout out just for if anyone needs a project to learn about reading the nutritional label on pet foods, there are some really great 4-H uh, projects that you can do to practice learning what the nutritional statements are on a pet food package. So uh, we have 4-H in Washington. It's under WSU. If you guys are interested, you can always look up some of our projects and that's in there. So uh, one of the other parts of feeding 
our pets is uh, all of the different food trends we see online. So I personally get a little bit confused seeing all the new food trends pop up because there's so many of them. I don't know what's actually good for my pets. So can you give us some information on these trends? And I'll just quickly go through some of the ones that I've heard of. So first up, and the one that I see a lot is the raw food diet. What is it? Can you explain a little bit about that to me? Yes. Um, the raw food diet is probably the biggest trend out there right now. Um, it's made up of raw foods, uh, you know, combination of meats, sometimes vegetables, uh, sometimes even grains. And they were really born out of an aversion to kibble and the fact that kibble is processed, um, specifically extruded. And then the belief that because dogs and wolves have a common ancestor, you should feed raw meat and other ingredients to your dog because it's the most quote-unquote biologically appropriate. And these diets were designed with the following in mind, that there is sometimes a benefit to under-processing food. There's a lot of data out there on advanced glycation end products. Our body can deal with these, um, and so can our pets, but to what level is not currently understood. So by not cooking, you're not generating those advanced glycation end products. One of the benefits is actually is that these diets are highly personalized to your pet if it's being formulated by a veterinarian who is board certified in nutrition. Uh, I don't recommend formulating diets at home because there is a study out there by Jonathan Stockman that about 98% of home formulated diets are deficient in at least one nutrient or more. One thing uh, for raw diets is some of the nutrients are more bioavailable, but as you know, there's always balance because some nutrients become more bioavailable when cooked. Uh, so for different ingredients, you have different strategies to bring out the best features. Raw diets are made up of uh, raw and uncooked ingredients, which means that you do lose heat as a way to control for pathogens, and thus you have a higher likelihood for microbial growth and contamination. And if you get that contamination, your dog can potentially become a vector for pathogens like E. coli, salmonella, listeria. And at that point, they become a public health concern for their potential to pass that bacteria onto humans. Obviously, I listed a lot of positive and negative attributes to the diet. And it's up to every consumer to weigh their risk level and how they feel about the positive and negative attributes of the diet. I appreciate you giving us both of those because I think I get concerned about the raw food diet for the safety of the dogs as far as balancing diets because I know how hard it is to balance a diet for an animal. So I'm glad that you mentioned that they need to make sure to work with someone who actually is trained and certified to do nutrition to make sure that diet meets their needs. But it is a good option if they decide to go through the right people to develop those diets. So our next trend seems to follow the human diets that are currently popular. Will you tell us a little bit about the grain-free pet diets we're seeing? Yes. Uh, grain-free diets were really born because of that consumer demand. I mean, everybody wants their diet to still look like their pet's diet because we love them so much. And there was a huge amount of widespread interest in feeding grain-free they're kind of hard to evaluate because they are relatively new. So there is a lack of peer-reviewed data available in the public domain. So if you do want to make a science-based decision in feeding your pet, it can be a little bit more challenging just because there's not a lot of data out there. 
So would you say the biggest recommendation on that one is to talk to your vet to see if a grain-free diet is a good option for your pet? Yep. You can talk to your vet or maybe um, if you work in a research facility where they are doing research on grain-free, you'll have more of an insight. Um, and sometimes there will be peer, peer-reviewed data, but it's hiding behind a paywall. So if it's something you're really interested in, budgeting out 20 or $30 to read a couple of articles on it might not be a bad idea. That makes sense. So the next one I actually had not heard of. I didn't know the difference between this and a raw diet, but will you tell us a little bit about what fresh diets are? Yes. So fresh diets aren't raw, but they are less cooked, if that makes sense. Um, They still are cooked, um, which is nice because they have a kill step. So consequently, a reduced risk of microbial contamination And they did come out for similar reasons to raw because of the fewer advanced glycation end products. Um, I like fresh diets because they, you can store them in your fridge, um, but they aren't shelf stable. So if you don't have a lot of room in your fridge, that might not be very appealing to you. That makes sense. And these are ones that are produced by pet food companies. So that's the big difference between the raw food and these fresh diets, too, is that these are ones that are are sold versus a lot of the raw food diets are people at home making those diets, right? Am I understanding that correctly? There are a lot of companies out there that actually do sell raw diets now. Um, So it's not everything. And there are actually still a lot of people who make fresh diets for their pet. Um, Whenever I'm talking about a diet, I want to make it really clear. I'm talking about a diet that is formulated by a nutrition expert, whether that's somebody, you know, with a, you know, degree in animal science and nutrition, somebody who is a specialized board certified veterinarian. Um, I mean, those, those types of people who are qualified to formulate commercial pet food diets. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks for that clarification. So our next trend that I've been seeing is really silly to me because cats are carnivores and dogs are omnivores, depending on who you ask. But will you tell me about vegan and vegetarian pet foods? (laughs) Well, I mean, vegan and vegetarian, like grain-free diets, like ancestral diets, they were really designed to cater to our personal philosophies to make us more comfortable about what we're feeding our pet. Um, Cats are obligate carnivores, so they cannot thrive or survive on these types of diets. Um, You know, they're a hard no-go for cats. If you want a house pet that is a vegetarian, um, because of your personal beliefs, I recommend a rabbit (laughs) because they can be vegetarian. I mean, they are vegetarian unless you have a killer rabbit like mine who likes to hunt lizards. Um, But there is something really exciting on the market, and that is a lab grown mouse meat and that it's been in the news a lot lately. And I think that that'll be really exciting um, for people who want to have a cat who are vegan that might provide them with an alternate protein source that will make them feel better. Oh, that's super interesting. I have not heard of the lab grown mouse meat. Um, If you go to uh, petfoodindustry.com, you can look at the articles there for free. I think all you have to do is enter your email Um, And you can see what's, you know, upcoming in the pet food industry. Um, And it's, I highly recommend it. It'll be a good read if you are interested in nutrition or interested in the pet food industry. 
Um, for dogs, though, there are some really good vegan vegetarian options out on the market that you can get a complete and balanced meal for your dog. Um, I, I know depending on who you ask, uh, but like humans, dogs are omnivores. So a vegan or vegetarian diet um, that is formulated to provide all the nutrients they need is certainly available. And if your personal philosophies align with that, um, you can go get one from multiple pet food manufacturers. Hmm. All right. That makes sense. So this is the last one and probably the most common type of pet food that we see. But will you tell us a little bit about dry pet food? Yes. Um, So dry dog and cat food or kibble and then also uh, wet food like canned foods. They've been on the market for a very long time. Um, They were designed to be shelf stable and budget friendly. Super affordable option. (laughs) I have three dogs and two cats, so I am very budget conscious about their food. And the benefit of them being around for such a long time is there is lots of research in the public domain to allow you to make a very informed decision about what to feed your pet. Um, cooking either through extrusion or retort can make nutrients more bioavailable, just like when we talked about raw. Some nutrients are more bioavailable when heated and some are more bioavailable when they're not. So a good example here would be chickpeas. Raw chickpeas aren't very digestible, while cooked chickpeas are much more digestible and, you know, make a very good curry. Uh, Yes, they do make a good curry. I agree with you on that. So just to clarify, bioavailable basically means that that food is more digestible so that those nutrients are actually getting to the cells they need to get to and not just passing through as feces. Yes. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate those answers. I know this was a huge topic to cover in a short time. So if people are interested in learning more about these topics, do you have any good resource recommendations? I do. I am always going to recommend going straight to the peer-reviewed scientific publications in a respected scientific journal. That way you can see the research about the topic that you're interested in. You can evaluate the methods section. The methods section should be very clear. It should be very easy to understand. And it's useful so that you can quote unquote grade the study design and identify if the study design has bias that would affect interpretation of the results. You can see the results and the conclusions that the authors feel that we can draw from the study. And there are a lot of articles that are free, aka they're not hiding behind a paywall. But if you do want to look at those articles, it's usually a very small fee for um, temporary access or a somewhat larger fee for more permanent access. I also recommend starting with nutrition textbooks if you want to learn more about pet food nutrition. Although they can be expensive, I would definitely check your local libraries to see if they have anything available. I recommend these scientific sources because blogs and social media and websites, they can just be a lot harder to discern where the bias is because um, it's very... It's very hard to see on social media what someone's qualifications are or someone who's writing a blog and you don't know if they have some sort of bias. And so I just try to avoid those uh, because they're not usually a very good source of like scientifically accurate information. Mm-hmm. But if you are a little bit more into surfing the web, you can look to see if the pet food that you're feeding has a website because some pet food websites will have lots and lots of information about why the brand uses the ingredients, what the nutritional strategy is. So is this a diet that you know the company formulated for 
senior dogs or cats? Is this a diet that they formulated for puppies? Is it for working dogs? Um, Stuff like that. Hmm, That makes sense. One of the other recommendations while you're talking about resources that I'm going to tack on is anything published by a university or extension is a really reliable resource. And they oftentimes have things on pet nutrition because they have pet nutrition specialists. Sometimes veterinary schools will publish things as well. Uh, so thank you so much for all of this important information. I, this was so much to go through, but I really appreciate you talking to us about all of these hot button topics and for just being here with us today. Thanks, Corrine. Perfect. Thanks, Tasha. Thank you for listening to the Cougs Talk Stock podcast brought to you by Washington State University Extension. You can review, rate, and subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you listen. Find us online at soundcloud.com forward slash Cougs Talk Stock, where the additional resources from our podcasts are linked. Let us know if you have any burning questions or suggestions at Stock at wsu.edu. This podcast is brought to you by Hannah Browse, Sarah Drager, Dr. Don Llewellyn, and Natasha Moffat-Hemmer, and is produced by Connors Communications at Washington State University. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.